Before we dive into the Season 3 finale with Alden, I've just got some housekeeping notes. Eight months later, we're wrapping up yet another season of Outer Rim Reads. I hope you all have enjoyed this book and our journey together. It's been such a roller coaster ride, and I've loved every step of the way. Thank you especially to our patrons who have generously supported the show each month. You all are absolutely incredible. Looking forward to Season 4, we will be returning to the High Republic. That was the direction that the majority of listeners supported in our annual listener survey, and I am so excited for that. I've decided to keep the same format as this season. By that, I mean I'm going into Season 4 totally blind. This means until then, I'm going to read as much High Republic as I can to catch up as much as possible with the current releases, and I'm going to pick a stopping point somewhere down that line. So I'm not going to read Season 4's book beforehand. I'll be going into that coverage free of spoilers and without a single clue, just like this season. I've really enjoyed that format this season, and I hope you all have got a kick out of my book-wild predictions along the way. I've been horribly wrong at a lot of points, but I will still claim that prediction for Bell mastering the Force Fall when he did. This will affect what the inner season break looks like, though. Because I'm going to be reading pretty much non-stop to catch up as much as I can, I've decided for a bit of a thinner release schedule on the road to Season 4. Where I've released around four episodes between seasons before, this time I'll probably aim for two episodes in the interim. I'm going to take three months for that. Two of those months will see one of our break episodes drop, and I'll take the third month mostly off. This will give me time to rest, focus on grad school, and also to record, edit, and produce a new show in the works. I won't say much more about that one here, but you can hear more of a sneak peek next Thursday, May the 5th, when I'll be doing the final Searcher Readings Live of this season over on Instagram at 6pm Eastern. I hope to see you there to chat about this book, The High Republic, Star Wars in general, and this new show that I am so excited for. So with all that out of the way, let's get into episode 56, closing out Light of the Jedi. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 56 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In today's episode, the season three finale, we'll wrap up Light of the Jedi, covering chapters 42 through 44 and the epilogue, and I'm joined by the creator and host of Octo Radio and co-creator and co-host of the One and Done Film Club, Alden Diaz. Alden, how's it going today? Thanks for being on the show. Hey, man. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, this has been something I've been looking forward to for a while, to go back to this book. I love the idea of breaking it down chapter by chapter, really exploring it all. You sort of approach these like a season you know, of television, and so you've got sort of that sequential, surrealized stuff that's so key to Star Wars that I'm really excited that you asked me to be on and it's gonna be a lot of fun a lot of a lot of high drama in this one <laughs> the high republic and so it has to be matched with the high drama as well uh that's the first time that it's been uh, the format of the show has been compared to like a tv show or a tv series uh which i appreciate that's actually a, a cool way to, to think about it i do also have to say uh, you know it's it's been a while to uh you know, we've had to reschedule a few times but i'm glad that we can finally make this happen now that my wi-fi actually works because we've got 
some really good chapters in front of us to close out this book. But before we even dive into those chapters, I was wondering for the listeners if you could talk a little bit about your background with Star Wars, how you got into the fandom, and then also specifically how you got into and your experience with Light of the Jedi. So Star Wars overall is one of those things where it always felt like it was sort of part of the world's culture in a certain way, where unlike your comics, unlike other movies, unlike a lot of the cartoons that were big, or even things like Lord of the Rings, you know, which were more previous to those Jackson films, they were novels. And so it's like, unless you were a big reader, you might not have encountered them. It was a different time in the nerd space. But Star Wars was a thing that existed before us. And our parents knew about it. And they knew about these movie stars like Harrison Ford. And it was this thing that they had seen when they were kids. So it had that air of importance. And so when we're coming up in the prequel era, I remember I was... First one I saw in the theaters was Attack of the Clones. I was six years old. And Attack of the Clones 20 upon us, by the way. Uh, for a- anyone listening to this in, in step with the release schedule, we're actually like really close to it. Um, which is wild, but I remember seeing Attack of the Clones and then seeing Phantom Menace maybe on, I guess, maybe VHS. I think it had a VHS release. And somebody had, maybe one of my cousins had these two walkie-talkies. One of them was a Stormtrooper walkie-talkie. One of them was a Vader walkie-talkie. It was their helmets. Oh, nice. And I was really honed in on the Vader one because he's cooler, of course. (laughs) No disrespect to the random TK troopers. But... Somebody like kind of saw me playing with it while little Anakin was on screen. And they said, you know that that little boy becomes that helmet. That that's his helmet when he's a grown up. And I thought, what? And they were like, yeah, this is the movie about the kid Darth Vader. And I could not even process that you could get the whole picture of this character's life. That's not a thing. Like you just when you watch X-Men or Spider-Man or at that point, Harry Potter, there had only been one Harry Potter because I think that Chamber of Secrets comes out later that year. So it's like we you don't get to see your heroes young and old. You don't get to see their whole story like that in your villains, too. Mm-hmm. Like You get to see your villain as a kid like that was so foreign. Nowadays, we have a, a society that is pop culturally very focused on the details. There's a wiki for everything. There's an explainer for everything. There's a listicle for everything. And everyone's got a backstory. Everyone's got a novel. Everyone gets a spinoff. Everyone gets a Netflix show. <laughs> so it's 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 very different. Like kids growing up now, it's like, oh, you like Hawkeye? He's got a six-episode series. Oh, you, you know, oh, you like Boba Fett? We got a, we <laughs> we got got a Boba Fett <laughs> in this show. We got Boba Fett in his own show. So it's, it's very, very different now. And I am so thankful for that fact i'm very envious of the kids nowadays that are able to have that but yeah it's just those that distinct realization for me was there and then i was just ravenously hungry for as much of it as i could get i was you know playing knights of the old republic on xbox i was playing rogue squadron on gamecube it's rogue squadron that's on gamecube right i'm pretty sure uh rogue squadron on gamecube uh, I'm running around in the library grabbing Jedi Apprentice and, and different things, like the, the, which are some of my favorites. Uh, shout out to Xanatos, 
Where's Xanatos <laughs> and Canon? I ask you. Um, Getting a spinoff so, soon. <laughs> uh, I, I God, I hope I would. I would work on that for free. Uh, but so it was just that immediate hunger that that a lot of us have. I need to see the visual dictionaries. I was fascinated by the costumes. I was fascinated by the technology. I was fascinated by the mythology, which is where where I lean in my Star Wars love is toward that Force mythos, toward the very. Uh, high fantasy, the Arthurian stuff, the the weird stuff. My favorite kind of Star Wars is the unexplained. Yeah. So when you talk about Mortis, when you talk about the Mirror Cave on Octo, the the Dark Cave on Dagobah, uh, the Lothwolves. Like when people say, you know, Lothwolves are my favorite example of weird Star Wars because people will say, oh, how does that work? Like in Rise of Skywalker, they're able to transfer the saber, you know, through space. And they, they can move matter to each other. And people, how does that work? And it's like, well, we had we had wolves that could walk from one side of the planet to the other it, with, with no effort. And now so you're it's surprised. Like, <laughs> yeah, like we, we, we had that the Exegorth slug in Empire that can breathe in space. Like it's a fantasy. And so that I've always loved, what? which ties in. <laughs> I know, it's crazy, which ties in beautifully uh, to the higher public because while it does have its sci-fi ideas, you know, the, the colonization of a frontier, uh, moving out into unseen territories with this epic mega space station, this very futurist sort of ideal new species being encountered, trying to get them to join a republic. It has a lot of that stuff. It has the machinations, but it is so fantastical and it puts such an emphasis on the knights at their height. You know, they've likened it to Camelot, both in terms of the actual mythic Camelot of, of, of legend, but also to Camelot in terms of American history and, and you know, the, the time of, of great reforms. And so all of that was immediately attractive to me. And I, you know, to talk about Light of the Jedi specifically, of getting excited for this book, heading into this book, because it was the first Del Rey novel and the kickoff for the entire thing, there was a lot of pressure riding on this. And there had also been a simmer of build in the fandom. And that was the, oh, there's going to be something announced with this Project Luminous thing. They've been talking about Project Luminous. What does that mean? Is this going to be, uh... like, we knew it was some sort of initiative and we knew that it would involve Marvel and Del Rey and IDW and all these different companies, but no one had any concept of what it was. And then I think it was, you know, I try not to engage in leaks, but sometimes they're hard to avoid. I think it was like two days before it was formally unveiled that the words High Republic started floating around on the internet. And if you were paying attention, they had already been floated around, but no one knew that they were relevant details in Charles Soule's comics and things like that, yeah, Kevin true. Scott's comics. So if you go to like Dooku Jedi Lost, several strong tie-ins uh, that were, you know, seeding before we even realized. So all extremely well thought out and, you know, it to sort of, answer your other question while I'm answering this one. You asked about how I got into the fandom. This type of stuff of being a fan of the creators is what took me from I'm hungry for all this to I I want to make this an active part of my life. I've always wanted to entertain. I've always wanted to work in entertainment. I've always and I, and I ended up working in entertainment because of Star Wars in a lot of ways. And it's because I became a fan of all those things, those video games, those Jedi Apprentice books, all that stuff. But then I became a fan of George Lucas. Then I became a fan of Urban Kirshner. I became a fan of Duck Chang. I became a fan later on of Dave Filoni. And, and you start to learn about who these people are. Flash forward now to these rumors of High Republic. I'm already a, a fan of Charles Soule. A, from his Marvel and DC work. 
He's got a killer Swamp Thing run, great Daredevil run. His She-Hulk run is fantastic for people that are into superhero books. But his Star Wars stuff, I mean, his Lando miniseries, his Anakin and Obi-Wan series, he'd already written the Poe series. And he, now it's like, oh, he gets to take a crack at a novel in a new era. And then Light of the Jedi gets unveiled. And you see that painterly cover with Avar and Buriaga and... I believe it's Elzar and Loden that are on the cover. I should have grabbed my copy. Of it. I don't know. I, I've got the, <laughs> the special the edition, so I, I don't. I I can't. Oh, the, well, the special one is rad <laughs> yes. with the them all charging oh, yeah. on Elfrona. Yeah. Oh, it's gorgeous. Elfrona was another thing. Elfrona is in the Rise of Kylo Ren, which had come up by, almost a year out from this book. So it was. It was all there uh, in advance. It was all there, but I was all in. I thought this is exactly catering to my needs. I had tried not to act in Star Wars fandom about what I want, what I want, because it's not relevant to criticism in my opinion, but it it definitely did feel like Alden, you've sat through your, uh, you know, your squadrons and your, (laughs) you know, pilot stuff and your war stuff and all the stuff that other people are really into. I've never been a, big troopers guy i was never really a big clones guy but the jedi and what the jedi mean i mean you've already covered this part of the book on your show because it's much earlier it's the interlude but the council sitting around and just debating like what does that mean what what is peace what is justice yariel poof talking about peace and tyranny and the relationship between what it means to be a a, a jedi in, in the context all of that stuff and that's, again, that's the middle of the book. So it's like, it, there's so much exploration and I was all in. My only hesitation going in was, is 230-ish years before Phantom Menace enough time to make it feel like a distant golden age? And very quickly, does that fear go away? You you completely buy in to this era. So there's my very long answer to your <laughs> few questions. A fantastic answer, though. It's uh, I, I've been really impressed with... You know, there there's some some name you know name drops of Yoda and you know the, uh, ideas and and objects even that we're familiar with from like the Skywalker saga you know from the Phantom Menace onward. But really, it it, it is a breath of mostly very fresh air from anything that we've been exposed to in the Skywalker saga or any kind of Star Wars content that we've gotten yet. Uh, which which makes me in a way kind of sad to be wrapping up the book today but it has been a fantastic journey i've been really impressed with charles soul's writing and there there are some good moments uh in these chapters as well uh where he's he's really finishing strong i think so i can give my summary for chapter 42 and then we can dive into these closing chapters of light of the jedi perfect On Coruscant, Chancellor So internally questions whether she made the right decision in reopening the Outer Rim hyperspace lanes. She looks to the group present, the task force from the Hetzal disaster, and reflects on the role of the Jedi in saving the day there. So discusses the logistics of reopening the lanes with her secretary and Senator Noor, and makes a note to commend Kevin Tarr for his phenomenal efforts in planning the Navidroid array. Senator Noor begins to plan a tour of the Outer Rim worlds most heavily affected by the disasters and the closures, and calls the Nihil threat extinguished, only for Admiral Cronara to say that might not be the case. Chancellor So announces that the Starlight Beacon will be opening on time, reflecting on what it will mean for her vision for the Republic as they move further into the Outer 
rim. This, uh, you know, kind of in the closing stages of this book, uh, we, we get this relatively short chapter where kind of the, the task force, the squad is back together again, kind of uh, basking in their uh, mostly success, even though they did suffer some heavy losses at the Kerr Nebula. But what did you think about chapter 42 as a whole before we dive into the details? I really love I mean, it's again, to not sound like a broken record, you'll hear me say that I really love this chapter, but I really, <laughs> this book comes together for me in such a strong way, in part because of these books. I mean, your summary, the, these moments, your summary starts with that key element of Lena So sort of having to reconcile with the decision making that has happened around her and, uh, and, and at levels beneath her, like with Kevin Tarr, but I find her to be such a fascinating character that I was glad to have the beats of this chapter inserted into the story. And I think that we're almost suspicious of her at this point in the higher public. And again, as we talked about off air, uh, no spoilers later on for anything that happens with Lena or anybody else. But to have that character that is pure progressive, to have that character that is hopeful in the seat of power that we know by the time of Palpatine is a seat of corruption. Uh, it's very interesting to see how she's sort of handling the situation. So that those are the biggest takeaways um, when I think back on this part of the book is really thinking about the Lena and sort of her position in terms of what's going on. Yeah, really spearheading these these great works that she constantly refers to in capital in capital letters, great works. But at the beginning of the chapter, you know, she is reflecting on her decision to reopen the lanes and she turns to the group that is with her. And she takes specific note of the Jedi there. I think Avar Chris is there, um, and Elzarman, I think, but uh, Avar for sure um, is there. And she thinks, you know, how thankful she is for them. You know, the situation in Hetzal would have been drastically worse if it hadn't been for their efforts. However, quote, sometimes she wondered if they were too useful. That was a very curious thing to read. And to think, especially coming from her, it feels like it would be odd if she was questioning their reliance, uh, the Republic's reliance on the Jedi, since, you know, she is, you know, there she is sending the second largest contingent of Jedi on one of her great works, on kind of the, the forefront of these great works. Yet she still asks herself that question, if the Jedi are too useful. And I, it was, it was a very curious thought to read. What did you make of that question there? If she's wondering if they're, if they're too useful, it was very odd, I thought, to, to read that. I think that what you touched on, I think, is an element of it. Reliance, that comes up. And again, to keep it very vague, that, that's a question throughout this era. And in, in other books, you'll see other politicians have different points of view on. And even in this book, there are different points of view on, yeah. on Jedi intervention inside the Jedi and from the outside perspective. And I think that that's part of it. But I also think that too useful plays on a dual level of the Jedi's power and what that power does psychologically in terms of like temptation and things like that. It's too useful. And knowing what we know about specifically her job, the Chancellor's seat, and what would happen later when the Jedi and the Republic were way too intertwined you know, just a little over 200 years later with Palpatine and all that stuff. I think it does play on the reader's knowledge a little bit of what's going on. You know, we have a, 
There's a chancellor who's working with the Jedi, who's dispatching the Jedi. Is this brushing up against what we know would happen with them having that battle between we are keepers of the peace, not soldiers, as Mace Windu would later say. And I think it's also a comment on her character because she is aware of the fact that they're so useful that it's within her power to just point them like a gun at any problem that she has. And that that would that would be effective that they're too they're too useful you have wizards you know wizard warriors with a certain level of you know sort of hero worship a little bit of godhood around them uh especially with the great feats that we see in this book i mean uh avar and is it avar and elzar or is it avar and stellan it's been so long i think it's avar and elzar make it rain yeah. in this book they yeah. actually are able to change the weather. Avar, what they did, uh, you know, with the the entire situation of the great disaster, of Avar using her song to unify them, like they are an incredible force, and we're almost fortunate that they won, you know, the Sith Wars way back. You know, it's it's. I think it's an absolute power corrupts absolutely, and she is aware of that. That it's good to have them now, but at the same time, it's a very slippery slope. Yeah, I mean, they they definitely have their uses, you know. I mean, the galaxy would be already much worse off if it hadn't been for what Avar and Elazar could do, if what the whole Jedi contingent at Hetzal could do, stopping the Tabana uh, container. But I, I love that connection to to the prequel era when we see what exactly happens when the Jedi have become too useful to the Chancellor, to the Republic, and they become... Uh, when it's it's too late to separate them uh, before you know Palpatine took advantage of it. Because right now it's easy to say, okay, you're the Jedi Knights, and because of this Nile situation, we need you to step up and help us defuse. But then helping us defuse the situation or bring them to justice can very quickly become everything that it becomes later. We need you to be generals. We need you to be emissaries. We need you to be diplomats. We need you to be bodyguards. We need you to be spies. We need you to be security. Uh, and they can do all those things very well. And that's not great, to say the least. It's a painful irony there where it, it is fantastic that they can do all those things. But also, like you say, it's not great eventually uh, for them to be you know, as useful in so many different areas as we know them to eventually be. So it's very interesting then, uh, in light of what you've now said, that she is already kind of begging the question there, but nevertheless, still sending them with the Starlight Beacon because she knows it's more or less necessary, especially with kind of the unknown of what they're getting themselves uh, into as they go to colonize the, uh, the Outer Rim. In going over the logistical issues of reopening the vast Outer Rim hyperspace lanes. They mention a Navidroid shortage due to Kevin Tarr's array, and he here gets the recognition he deserves from the Chancellor when she says there's a potential great work in a report that he's generated for the future uses of the array, and she's saying to, you know, offer him a medal, give him a high-level university posting, a job with the Republic, you know, award this man. You know, basically she wants to keep him around with his brilliance and that she would hate to lose him, as she says, to the private industry when there's work that she wants to do in the Republic. And I was wondering here, and I think maybe it's a little bit of both, but does she really, do you think she really cares about 
him as a person and what he did for the Republic or just kind of the intellectual property that he can generate there? You know, maybe a little bit of both where, you know, she would hate to lose that kind of brain power to you know, the private industry. But, you know, I don't think anything sinister is going on here where it's like, all right, make sure we keep him around. You know, who cares about, you know, him as long as we have what he can do? Is there is it mostly the politician side of Lena So at play here, or do you think that she genuinely wants to thank him for not single handedly, but really playing a massive role in saving the Republic? I think it is exactly what you're saying in terms of it being both. It Lena is the epitome of a politician in the best way. Like she's the highest height of what a politician could be. She's morally upstanding and she thinks of her constituents, which just happens to be the entire Republic as sort of being her own. You know, we are all the Republic is her positioning statement um, for her platform. So I do believe that she believes it. But at the same time, it is also a political platform. So you can't escape being a politician if you are one. You know, that's what eats everybody from the inside, whether it's Lena So, whether it's Bail Organa or Padme, anyone that's been good in it. Um, has had to make compromises that they're not comfortable with. So I do think that Lena is like, she's definitely helping the Republic, but I I do think she's appreciative of his actions for sure. But I also think that the, you know, wanting to keep the private industry at bay is, is definitely a motivating factor for sure. Yeah, I mean, like you say, the political side, like the political nature of the role that she's in is inescapable. You know, it is a reality she has to deal with and, you know, she has to uh, to play to that side of her job and her life, you know, because uh, especially like you say, with the, her constituency being the entire republic, she has to do everything she can to look out for for them, maybe in the ways that she thinks is best. But Chancellor So does thank Senator Noor for his patience, you know, because he was very outspoken about, you know, it's a bad thing to close these hyperspace lanes. These are hurting the outer rim worlds like there are riots. People are suffering. There's food shortages and all very valid complaints. And here, you know, she does thank him for that. And Noor says, you know, he never doubted so, which is the dutiful thing to say here. But we also know he's pretty much planning to challenge her seat soon. So, you know, definitely not all is well here. But he gave a good, you know, politician's answer there, even though he might not actually agree with what she did but he's going on to plan this tour of the outer rim to thank the worlds for their patience and for hanging in there and he's treating the nihil threat as if it's over you know we've we've defeated them and he can share the news and admiral cronara interrupts him there and i thought it was a, a pretty useful and kind of i was relieved to see this turn that cronara made in his thinking towards the nihil because you know the battle of the core nebula ended with him thinking the threat's over. You know, we've, we've defeated the Nihil, which had me worried. It was, I was very worried, but this was welcome to see where he's saying, we don't know if they're gone. And there's a lot of questions that are still unanswered. He's, and he's very right. You know, although they destroyed a big number of the Nihil, you know, we still don't know, or the Republic still doesn't know how they got those hyperspace capabilities, where they're based, what their goals are, etc., and I don't know, I, again, I was worried about Cronara thinking that the threat was over, but here it was very welcome to say, or to read once he had time to think about it, that there are still some minds in the Republic who are very aware that there's still too many questions left unanswered for this to be a comfortable place for the Republic to be in, and for Senator Noor to be acting as if it's all 
done. Yeah, I mean, what we've seen throughout the book and with this example a lot is that peacetime has changed the way they think as much as wartime changes the way people think. And they are having to train themselves on the fly to be more vigilant and to not sort of rest on their laurels and their because of what they have and because of the great works and because of this era it's all emblematic of a feeling of we're untouchable it's not with arrogance like lino so is not an arrogant uh blowhard politician there's this feeling that like we're everything's great like what could happen like what could be so bad it could not be as you know it can't be worse than what we already faced we we beat them right but maybe not and so it's all it's just like suspicion is growing and the element of surprise is on the side of the Nile. And so I think that's very uh, subtly explored, especially in moments like this. Yeah. I mean, we do know that they have many tricks up their sleeves that the Republic have no clue about. But before we can really get too worried in this chapter at what Cronara is suggesting, so does kind of break in and say, also, I want you to let the Outer Rim know that the Starlight Beacon is opening on schedule. And, you know, finally her great works can begin with the Starlight Beacon. And she goes on this internal monologue where she acknowledges that the Republic is comprised of many different worlds, each with their unique qualities. Quote, solving one problem inevitably caused others. But the key was this, and I'm just going to read this, this section here from the book in her thoughts. You could not solve those problems individually. It was ridiculous to even try. What you could do, however, was make the various peoples of this high era of the Galactic Republic see one another as people, as brothers and sisters and cousins and friends, or if nothing else, just as colleagues in the shared goal of building a galaxy that welcomed all, heard all, and did its best to avoid hurting anyone. Truly tried its best. I think she's got... A wonderful point here you know seeing others as people to begin with can go a very long way and seeing the humanity in each other and uh, instead of you know as means to an ends for example but is this too idealistic you know we've already seen a gulf in her vision for the republic and the realities of it in practice already in this book alone is it too idealistic? I mean, there is a lot of merit and value in this, in what she's thinking here. I think there's there's a lot to be had there in seeing each other as people, and that can spur on really fantastic change. But what was your take on that? My take, I remember reading it for the first time and then on rereading it, and my take on Lena throughout all the books, um, she's not in all of them, but all the books that she's in, and just in general with the great works, this whole idea is, you know, my belief is always that and i think this is not just a belief i think it's in the text in the material all of star wars movies tv books is that star wars is hopeful and idealistic and progressive and it's thinking and it is it's anti-fascist it's you know it's it's anti-discrimination and it's about togetherness and it's all these things so she's in line with the best of star wars and with the best of what she could be again she's the height of what a politician could be she's the epitome of that now, is she too idealistic given everything that's happened here? Is she maybe not quick on the draw in terms of adjusting her thinking for what is clearly a threat in the same way? You know, that complacency that we talked about of this era 
challenging them to to think maybe a little bit more strategically in a more pragmatic way. It's interesting. I don't think I have a hard answer for it. Is she too idealistic? Because you root for her, right? And that's what's so good about the way that Soul crafts this character is that you do you want her to be right. Part of it again is playing on the readers. Unless there is a Star Wars reader out there that somehow this book is their first Star Wars ever, which like I'd love to talk to that person. I would love to yes. talk to them because they must have such an interesting read um, of what a Chancellor is and what the you know what the Republic is like. But for the mo- most of us that are picking up this book, know the movies and stuff. So it's you want her to not be what we know later comes from her Republic because it, the Republic is, is a tragedy. It's a tragedy a few times over. You know, even in the sequel era, it's like. Not entirely obliterated, but the capital system is annihilated. So there's an air of melancholy over her idealism because you know that ultimately it's not in vain. You know, she does improve their public. She is bringing planets in. That's something else you see throughout the era. And that's the point of Starlight. So you want to support that. But it makes me think of, uh, I think it's at the end of X-Men Legends 2, the game. There's a great little cutscene with Xavier and Magneto where Magneto says, the world needs, I was going to do it, the world needs a realist, Charles, like, even though Ian McKellen's not in that game. Uh, but Magneto says, the world needs realists to keep it alive. And Xavier says, and it needs dreamers to give it a soul. Mm. And I feel like that those are both true. And it's like, as long as, I don't think Lena's too idealistic as long as she keeps the Cronaras and the you know the other senators in, in the room you can't just go half cocked into thinking that everything's going to be great because you say so you do need a little bit of both that's a really I, I love that you know and I think having both the the realists and the dreamers is necessary and we already see where like you said Cronara kind of did play that uh all right let's let's settle down a little bit here there's still problems at hand but it, it is uh it is still I mean, it's tragic, I think, to to see the the dream that Lena so has for the Republic and knowing what we know. Mm. And that's uh, cautionary across Star Wars, right? Because even though Lena's dreams for the Republic are not the same as the Jedi dream or the Jedi code, the Jedi also eventually fall victim to the fact that they think if we just believe it hard enough, then it'll be. And that's not true. That's what people like Dooku and Qui-Gon and Ahsoka, they all illustrate in different ways, is that the belief is not enough. If you're going to talk about it, be about it. If you're going to talk about compassion, be about compassion. And eventually, without having the right people in the room, because by the t- you know the Jedi Council right now is discussing ideas, whereas in the prequel era, it's mostly we just put things to a vote and shut things down we're not here to have i mean the they meet who could be the chosen one in the phantom menace and it's a five minute meeting where they mostly are just (laughs) sassy to qui-gon like that's all very intentional in this book uh when i i interviewed daniel jose older i've interviewed him a couple times on my show um and one thing one thing we talked about that's a nice little detail is that this era of the jedi has three grandmasters whereas but the prequel era and all of Star Wars is just one. Like, yeah, it's just the one. This has democratized Star Wars in a big way. And I think that Lena wanting to do... like I, After all that, I will answer the question like this. I, I think that she's very idealistic, but she's doing the steps to back that up. She is being about it. If she, didn't, if she was just talking this talk and didn't have a starlight beacon or something like that, but 
you know, that'd be different. But Starlight Beacon is sort of exactly what you should be doing. Yeah, she is walking the walk as well. You know, she's being the change she wants to see in the Republic, in the in the galaxy, or at least trying to, like she says, at least people who try to. We see uh, a different kind of vision for the galaxy uh, in chapter 43. I can give my summary for that one, and then we can talk about the Nihil and Markeon Row and what they're up to. Yes. The Nihil are gathered in their great hall, silent as they watch pieces of footage from the battle at the Kerr Nebula. Markeon Row, dressed now to fit his new role at the head of the organization, sits at a raised table flanked by Lorna D and Paneda. As he shows the Nihil how the battle played out, he riles up the crowd, emphasizing Kasav and his Tempest's heroic sacrifice against the Republic. Markion assures them that they chose freedom over tyranny. He tells them that they are all the Nihil, together, and leads them in a toast as cheers erupt. Markion announces the Nihil will no longer stay confined to the Outer Rim, but will now expand wherever they want to. The Eye pays a visit to his prized prisoner, Loden Greatstorm, and promises big plans for the Jedi Master and the destruction of his order. We had spoken a little bit off-air about uh, his conversation with Loden at the kind of the latter end of this chapter. There is a lot that goes on, kind of very chilling scenes in the Great Hall, and even more chilling and disturbing scenes once he gets to the prison aboard his flagship. What were your thoughts about chapter 43 and kind of this last installment in this book of what we see Mark Yonro up to and kind of getting a glimpse at what might be to come next for him, as well as a lot of questions along the way. But what do you think about chapter 43 and Markion? I find Markion to be so uniquely fascinating in Star Wars, and it brings me such joy because... It's like, again, so much of why this book works is in the, the shadow and context of the entire thing, which is something that I'm always preaching about on my show and on Twitter is the tapestry of Star Wars. And that is the way Star Wars works. It works backwards and forwards. It's not like something like the MCU. It's not like something like your favorite television shows, most of them, where they are moving linearly. Like, I, I always go to Obi-Wan Kenobi is my favorite example of this. Obi-Wan Kenobi is probably the greatest example ever of a character whose first appearance is also where they died. Like, <laughs> like every Obi-Wan Kenobi story we've ever gotten has been a flashback. Every single one, except for New Hope. And it's really great. And, like, <laughs> I know he has a ghost and, and Jedi and Empire, but, like, of his life, he is every single Obi-Wan Kenobi story we've gotten is a flashback. So Star Wars always works that way. And so within the context of Markeon, he's this villain over here when later on we would have these Sith villains and these Imperial villains and stuff. And Soul establishing him in this book, he is such a unique creature. He doesn't feel at all like those characters. and he's, But he still feels so distinctly Star Wars. And his methodology, which this chapter sort of crystallizes, again, for, for this chapter um, of his story... Is just so interesting, and I found him to he he sort of has this interesting way of stepping up in ways that aren't really bombastic. It's very quiet and it's very cold, and there's not really a brutality there. And seeing the way that he operates, especially against the Jedi, is that he has no illusions about the fact that he can't take them on. 
because he, he just can't. He's not a force sensitive being and he's not, he's, you know, he's younger. He's not that strong and all that stuff. He's just very, very interesting. And I, and I thought that this was a perfect cap off to what you get of him here. Yeah. I mean, a very, I think, you know, fantastically unique and uniquely fantastic uh, villain. Uh, he's been one of the most uh, interesting pieces to this story. And uh, I am left with so many more questions about who he is where he's come from, which I hope that we'll have more light uh, shed on as the stories progress from here. But we see, you know, like his methodology in, in kind of playing and pulling the strings of the Nihil and, and the kind of the grunts of the organization. And then with a, with his kind of larger plan and his what he has in store for the Jedi Order in his conversation with Loden. But starting off the chapter in this great hall, when he's sitting up there with Lorna and Pan. It's a very stark contrast to their first gathering in the book, where Markian was sitting at a table below the Tempest Runners. You know, they were kind of the center of the attention, and now he's up there with them, with the two that are left, with a new mask, you know, designed almost with an element of a crown, and also wearing a fur cloak that belonged to Asgaro, his father, and he's really leaning into this new role like with what he's wearing here not really trying to hide it from anyone which is it seems very in a way very different from how he would was going about running in the organization beforehand but now he's really kind of putting on this show even with what he's wearing here i thought it was very interesting contrast to what we saw earlier at the very beginning when we were introduced to the Hill in this great hall i mean yeah i mean it's it's a new chapter in his story starts here they sort of cliffhanger his character arc where this entire book is sort of i mean there is a literal markian origin story that people can go read it's in eye of the storm uh the two issue comic so that's like the literal origin of the man but in terms of him becoming the markian row that is the threat of this era this whole book is the slow origin it's the he's a disruptor he successfully changed the arrangement that had been set up for this organization where it was three runners and then the eye. The eye gets gives the pass. He gets his cut. It's very, very nice. It always worked. They're all older than him. And so there's this interesting sort of like a young disruptor. And now he doesn't have to pretend anymore. He's He still has strings to pull, totally. But it's putting everybody on notice. It's it's both self-serving and it's also an intimidation factor. And what's cool about Markion doing this in the Great Hall on this public display and how we've seen this location used throughout the book and especially now here at the end is that the Great Hall changes and becomes sort of his ideological playground. Like what Markion is great at and why he's so dangerous and why he's like a lot of demagogues in real history um, why he's like other big like cinematic characters. He makes me think a lot of Scar and the Lion King, where like Scar, you know, obviously that takes from Hamlet, but he, that archetype is not the strongest. But what he can do is take a bunch of rabble rousers and rapscallions and these bloodthirsty Viking idiots and most of the Nile that are low ranking, just doing drugs and listening to rec punk all the time it's just spice wreck punk i think one of them is smash that they do smash is one of the yeah. drugs that gets smash mentioned. bulbs or whatever yeah and so <laughs> he takes all of them and he gives them an idea 
and that's what's dangerous. He turns them from criminals and raiders into zealots, and it happens very, very slowly, and, and every single time that he's able to do that, it's just a fist that closes. And when him him up there now with that new crown, uh, that new helmet with the crown aspects that has the red eye in the middle instead of the spoky glass, it's it's a symbol, it's brighter, and it's all going to come uh, to a head. And I think that it's just, again, this book is so cinematic. And the fact that it's all in my head outside of a few illustrations is fascinating because I, I, I'm speaking about it like I watched it because it's all so well drawn in the writing. I think, I mean, maybe this is kind of the comic uh, background of, of Charles kind of pouring into his writing where I think there have been, I mean, most of the book has been very vivid in the way he's described it where you can really see it on the page or in 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 our minds, which is a really, it's, it's one of the things I've loved most about this book is his ability to bring it to life in our, in our minds. Uh, but I love your point about kind of turning the Nihil from just kind of uh, pointless raiders and marauders into zealots. You know, he gives them a purpose, which you know, that was something that he kind of was wary of and probably is still wary of as far as the Jedi Order is concerned. Is their unity and their togetherness and their purpose? And here we see him kind of give those things to the Nihil, the rest of the Nihil. And like you say, his grip on the organization really solidifies in this chapter. And he's totally playing the Nihil here. You know, speaking of Kasav's sacrifice with his Tempest and how, we, how they fought like the Nihil and ultimately, you know, showing them footage of when they started crashing into the Republic ships and all that. And he's saying, you know, I, I don't know why they did that, but he frames... He frames it as them, you know, kind of having enough of tyranny and choosing to die for freedom. When I was reading that, I just couldn't help but think just, wow. Like, you know, we know the truth, but he's spinning it perfectly. He, he knows exactly what to say, how to say it, how to instill silence among them, but and also to rouse them at the end. You know, it's really stunning in a way that he's kind of a master performer in this way. And it's exactly, you know, like you said, he doesn't need to be strong. He just has to know what to say, how to do it. And that can have even more of an effect on these thousands of people gathered there. It was a really stunning, but also very chilling display of Markion and how he was spinning this really uh, <laughs> horrible thing that he orchestrated and, and created at the Kerr Nebula into something that, into a tool that works for him here, really kind of bending them to his will with the story that he's telling them, which is total fabrication, but it has a very powerful effect nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's the ideological antithesis of, of Lena in that way, right? Where this book is a battle of ideas. It's, it's zealotry versus progressivism. It's, you know, a hope versus power it's all these classic star wars things and these two people that are not force users are leading the two sides um, with the jedi caught in the middle and everything that's happening with the boots on the ground but markion is able to sell them a bill of goods in such a believable way that he gives them something to believe in that is not it is the the anti we are all the republic it's it's we are all not them that's basically what binds us together and and able to create this fabrication is his greatest his greatest skill his greatest move in this book and his skill throughout the 
the era. I'll, I'll give you the tease and your listeners that this is the beginning of a pattern, that there are key Marquion speeches that happen, particularly one here and one in Fallen Star, that feel like they are a pair and and are framed similarly and, and are different contexts. But when Marquion speaks, he speaks with purpose and it, it always sort of signifies the next move. Um, and it's, it, yeah, he's just a very, very powerful character to see him speak with his words in this way because we'd see again we've seen it in star wars palpatine was a a bit of a wordsmith himself but that was more like the devil whispering in the ear of any one person at a time and you know it was more so the tarkins and everything that would handle the the groups but man like markeon roe is so fully fleshed out um with these moves yeah and really uh commanding the room like you said it's kind of become his uh like you said his ideological playground this great hall where they're kind of uh they they end up kind of uh really submitting to his vision and and accepting and taking on his vision for the galaxy and for the organization you know where he kind of does throw lena so's phrase you know right back at them you know instead of we are all the republic he says we are all the nihil and you know there's this moment where he takes off his mask and for the first time in front of the organization and everyone follows suit there and they start to cheer him on and really rally to what he's saying and as this is going on as they're cheering you know he's thinking that this is the first time the rest of them are seeing his face and that they don't even know his name too quote he wasn't markion Rowe either his name was it didn't matter where he came from was gone other than the lessons it had taught him and the few tools he had stolen from it when he left. Uh, uh, <laughs> just reading that, I was like, a what? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me? It's <laughs> like, again, the, the, the writing style that he establishes, like you said, because comic book nature comes through, the art of the tease, the art of My the God. forward momentum, and the art of Star Wars being like in Made Us Rest. It dropped us in the middle of this chapter in the same way that Ben Kenobi says... You know, the Clone Wars, Luke, oh, you fought in the Clone Wars? And then us, the viewer, what the hell's the Clone Wars? Like, <laughs> there's so much of that in, in this book and in this era. Like, yes, this is the furthest back we've gone in the canon timeline. And we have all these questions about, but what about before that? Like, there, there, it immediately <laughs> creates this whole, like, even at the beginning, before he makes his big moves, when you get the idea of what the arrangement is with the runners and the Nile and the paths and Mary Senteca and everything that's going on, you're like, what is the set that I, did I, is this the first book? Like, did I miss like, but in a good, in, in a good way. And it's, it's just yeah. so expertly crafted. And I like that soul with this book is he writes in a very fearless way. Like he's, he's confident that he can do that and throw a sentence like that in there that alludes to things and that you'll just have to go with it. Like it definitely feels like it's not going to hold your hand. Nope. It's just, plopped in there and then we just move on from it it's just it's such a such a tease there from charles and you know like like you're saying it kind of it definitely wants uh it has me wanting to go further back than light of the jedi so i really am and i mean i think he executed that perfectly where you can't not be interested now in what was just dropped in the middle of the page before we move on there and he ends the scene 
you know, after he's saying that they're, you know, going galaxy-wide, you know, the Nihil are going to expand out from the Outer Rim, he ends this scene with a serving droid bringing him a bowl, and he dips his fingers into it, and it's actually filled with blood. Kasav's blood, which he then draws three lightning bolts down his face, and the other Nihil follows suit when the droid kind of moves into the crowd, in memory of, quote, the one who gave everything for us. He literally collected Kasav's blood from when he beat the shit out of them for for this stunt. Like, this is, it's perfect, but also horrifying. Like, it, it is, and I think, you know, you mentioned, like, zealotry a few times in this chat. Like, that is kind of like the pinnacle of that, you know, where they're, they're then kind of, they have this mark now that they're all kind of drawing on their faces, kind of like, you know, I thought of maybe, like, the white hand of, Sa- of Saruman, you yeah. know, on the yeah. Urukai. They're really having this, sim- like, painting this, this symbol on their face in the blood of Kasav. It's just, that was... It was horrifying, but also I just was left just sitting back like, wow, uh, he's playing this perfectly, but also that's just messed. It's so messed up. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, first of all, probably one of the more grim images yes. depicted in Star Wars, even though it's, you know, it's in your mind, but we've seen blood accidental in Star Wars, like, you know, accidentally placed, like Force Awakens, you know, the stormtrooper dies and gets it on uh, Finn's uh FN2187 helmet, but to see it like this for the theatricality of it is so dark and it really it lets you know sort of like that that symbolism is the signature on everything that you just read. Like it's the we are becoming other, we're becoming something else, we're becoming a, a greater force and it's just so mythic and it it does that thing with a great villain where you begin to realize he really is like he's not delusional enough to forget that he's a manipulator but he does buy what he's selling to a certain degree and he buys it on on the level of how it serves him to manipulate the others but then on that deeper level he's he's just is sort of like a hedonist for this stuff and he's he's enjoying it and it's not in the usual star wars sense of the, the battle between dark and light he has no place in that battle he's not a sith lord his, there's, he's not. He doesn't feel the force in any conventional way that we know of, and that's not me being a tease for future books. We we really don't know. And this this moment, I think, is the moment that made me think back. The first time I read it, it made me really think back on his chapters and on his point of view, and think this guy is something else. Yeah, I mean, I think that was uh, that happened for me when when he uh, murdered Otto Blythe in cold blood. Just just cut him. Just kind of cut him in half, or whatever. Just like right there. It's like oh. So he's not like the other villains that we have read about or seen in Star Wars. And, you know, this is kind of the, the cherry on top there. But that's not even, you know, the, it's not even the worst of it, really, in this chapter. Uh, you know, because we do kind of eventually transition to the prison. This uh, has bright lights reflecting off of metal floors and walls and ceilings. There are eight cells, seven of which are programmed to shock the prisoners at random intervals all designed for the eighth prisoner. And that's Loden Greatstorm here. And we'll get more into really what this is doing in, in, a, in a little bit, where Loden right off the bat tries to mind trick Markion Rowe, you know, saying, you know, you'll let us all free. But Markion is able to resist. And we read that apparently his family knew all about the Jedi 
and how to resist the mind trick. So now I have questions about his family too, but they must have known the Jedi well enough in order to know these things, especially how to resist a, a Jedi mind trick. And he kind of builds that intrigue of, you know, how he knows so much about the Jedi and what he knows about them by saying, quote, you don't imprison Jedi behind bars. You do it with pain, knowing that, you know, others, pain, fear, anger can really make it hard on the Jedi to call on the Force. It was, I mean, I have a lot of questions about how he knows this, but really it's a good point, you know, playing on the same notion how he knew the Jedi's compassion would lead them to intervene to save the Blythes. You know, that pain and fear are both hard to focus through, but also harder for the Je for the Jedi and their light to break through as well, and he kind of knows how to read the Jedi in ways that I'm left wondering how, why, you know, how did this come to be? But it was very fascinating here that he knows even how to imprison them, not with bars, but with the pain of others. What did you make about kind of this bombshell here where we, right off the bat, it's thrown so much at us that he knows so much about the Jedi, his family does as well, but then also these intricacies along the way it's it was just baffling it was just mind-boggling this is the bond villain moment uh this is the i mean even to put it in star wars terms this is the i'm afraid it will be fully operational when you're friends <laughs> like this is this is the coup de gras where i got to this point like i think that the blood moment is like i okay this is really the apotheosis what this guy's about then this is the twisting of the knife this is the coda this is personal you could feel that it's very personal for him um, in ways that are explored later on, answered, not answered. But it's this, I think, is ideologically what the Nile are about and what the Jedi stand to lose in this era by getting involved. It's a lesson that will come to a head in the Clone Wars, obviously, you know, a couple centuries later. But it has this element of really showing them what their greatest threat is. It's not the Sith. It's not the Nile. It's not anything tangible. The greatest threat to them is complete loss of control and of these elements like fear and pain and, and, and hopelessness and helplessness. And it just all plays so well. It's so theatrical. It's so smart. It is a new way of fighting these heroes that we've been seeing on our screens for years and reading in books for years and playing in video games for years. We've never seen them fought this way. It's almost subtle. It's almost nonchalant the way that Marquion approaches it. And it's just, it's devastating. I mean, to see Loden in this, in this state and this part of Loden's story to see him fall from these great heights of being so incredible earlier on in this book. And to see that this stuff, you know, the most basic of Jedi tricks won't service him anymore. And, yeah, it's it's super interesting. I, I love this, and it, it brings me back to something I've said about the Nile, and particularly Markion. It makes me think of, a, a one for one, Justin Bolger, who used to work for Lucasfilm and ILMX Lab, uh, and is a great follow on Twitter. He once said that Palpatine with Mace Windu, it was sort of like the Joker and Harvey Dent in The Dark Knight, where he brought him down to his level. Because in Attack of the Clones, interesting. Yeah, Attack of the Clones, Mace is the guy who says we're keepers of the peace, not soldiers. Three years later, in in world time and in movie time, Mace Windu says, 
he's too dangerous to be left alive, which is exactly what Palpatine had said at the beginning of the movie when he uh, manipulated Anakin into killing Dooku. Oh, and that's true. <laughs> it's the same line, which is which is a brilliant thing that George did because it creates that false equivalency in Anakin's mind. Like he hears that, and then that confirms what Palpatine has been saying to him in his mind. Of they're the same. It's about point of view. So he's able to do that to this one man and bring down the order. Mark Rose doing the same thing here. He's bringing the Republic down to his level. He's bringing the Jedi down to his level. He's been that's that's I think what the good Star Wars threats and villains are like is that they challenge you ideologically. And by cutting Loden off from this thing that gives him life, that gives him purpose, and to just inflict him with pain, he's he's rendered him as helpless as I think Markian even feels or has felt. Being this younger guy, being the son of the former I, living in this shadow, having to sort of be a self-made monster, it just all comes to a head in such a strong way. A really uh, horrifying way. Um, you know, I guess he... He does uh, eventually get reminded that Loden still is very much a Jedi. He's very, you know, weakened in this state, but he's still dangerous. But uh, I, I'm very interested to see what this will do to Loden because we can see that he's, for one, exhausted, you know, from what he's been through. And also, Markion made a point to not give him medical attention for his uh, broken leg. So there's a lot that Loden is going through physically right now and also mentally and, and emotionally. So I'm really afraid with what this might mean for Loden great storm and uh, how it might eat away at him I, i'm i'm afraid you know he's been one of my favorite ch- uh, characters in the book and and i am very afraid but uh you know Loden does ask markion you know why is he doing this and apparently markion has seen enough movies to know not to go on kind of the classic villain monologue you know he he says that he doesn't have a plan he has a goal because plans can fail you if you stick to them but goals give him more flexibility But he does go on to say, and I'll read this passage from the book here, he does go on to say that it's not about Loden specifically, you know, what he's doing. Quote, I mean the Republic, building its starlight beacon out in my territory, invading, taking over with all its rules and laws and particular brand of freedom that isn't free at all. And you Jedi always just behind, absolutely convinced that every action you take is right and good, my family learned that to its cost long ago. He's got a point, in a way, like I, I think, kind of with what the Starlight Beacon is doing, kind of bringing the Republic's vision for things out into worlds that might not welcome it, you know, the kind of classic, you know, just colonization, you know, kind of imposing that way of life and will and, and version of, you know, freedom and what, what that means into these worlds. And but also kind of calling out the Jedi, too. You know, we mentioned earlier how they're becoming kind of intertwined here, even at these stages with the Republic and the government, where Markian's saying, yeah, the Jedi are never too far behind in kind of upholding and maintaining this Republic vision of how things should be. What did you make about that kind of accusation that Markian is throwing not necessarily at Loden himself, but at the Republic and what they are doing with this starlight beacon and the Jedi kind of tagging along in all of it. It's interesting because what Soul and everyone in this era does so well is that it gives him enough ground to stand on that it feels like there's an ideological battle to be had. My thoughts on it are very colored by what happens later, so I'm giving a very nerfed answer. Um, <laughs> but it, it, for the purposes of this, 
to put myself in that place of just this first book. You don't you don't want to read it and say he's got a good point, but you do want to say that it's a very understandable view for someone on the fringes. I think a lot of what this is about is the fringes versus the sort of centralized and and who the outsiders are and sort of uh, about hubris too. I think is a, is that a large a large point of what Marquion is criticizing. So I, I found that all to be very interesting and compelling. I just I guess kind of just reading the quote as well, I was reminded of how Marquion he might not be saying the or telling the full picture there because I, th- I remember Kasav something that Kasav thought you know and Kasav is a scumbag, but he thought about the Nihil being its own form of control, like you know kind of the Nihil every you know the kind of the, the everyday members are kind of given this illusion of freedom but it's not really free at all then that's exactly what Marcion is throwing to the republic here where it's like you say you're free but that's not really free at all but the night hill in a way are their own form of control as you know are you know in just as you know maybe in, in a different way than the republic but in in its own way as well so you maybe Marcion uh, is kind of you could say from a certain point of view oh my god like that's 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 literally like <laughs> That's what he, I mean, it, it's so Star Wars to do that of, they say they're free. No, 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 we're free. We're free with a very structured system and a bunch of codes and, <laughs> and a, a secret base and, and a history. And a, uh, we have to have bylines and, and guidelines, and you know, but we're, we're free. Like, it's just like, who, who says free? Who's the arbiter of free? You know, even within the Jedi, there's differing opinions within the Nile there's differing opinions I mean you know who's free Porter Angle's free he's the only one who's free because he did his time and now he gets to hang out making nine eggs stew making some nine eggs stew Porter is the only free (laughs) the only free character in this whole book (laughs) oh I that's a take I can stand behind uh willingly very gladly and I think also like him kind of creating that blanket over the Jedi with like oh you think everything you do is right and good we know that applies to some of the Jedi. Like, Jorah Mali was very much like, yeah, we're Jedi, so literally any action we take is in accordance with the light and the will of the Force. Like, that's just how it is, because we're Jedi. So it, it can apply to some, but not all. So I think, you know, it's we are seeing some narrow-mindedness and kind of on seeing what he wants to see in order to create his own justifications for what he is going to do and, and what he's doing. We do get a massive twist when Loden notes that he actually recognizes Markion's voice, that he's heard it before. And Markion goes on to imitate a distressed security call, mocking a homesteader family in trouble and how the Jedi have to go rescue them. I'm getting chills right now. I was absolutely floored. Yeah. At this being the moment where we realized the distress call for them to go on Elfrona to save the Blythes was Markion Rowe impersonating this security officer. I was I, I was speechless. I kind of am. It's gold. Now, just, it's it w- like gold. Because w- <laughs> it's such a real world small thing, just imitating somebody on a call. You see you see that in movies all the time. You see that in spy thrillers and political fiction and like it feels like nothing it feels like a nothing move like a grunt move but it's that he wanted to do it and that he wanted to be right and he was 
that about their compassion about that being their weakness and he was like again it's the fact that he came down from his high seat to, to do that himself with such a small task led to this imprisonment all of this yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's a brilliant brilliant little just added spice it's a added middle finger to the entire side of good uh, in this situation it's just the length that he's willing to go are really just from the gr- from the kind of the grander plots and schemes with you know sacrificing Kasav and tricking Lorna you know kind of giving her away and even just the small things here where he's just impersonating a call and uh, kind of it was really just uh, my mind was absolutely blown there that does make Loden uh, maybe angry I don't know it, it does spur a reaction from Loden he does use the force to throw Markion into the wall. It does exhaust him, that move, but, uh, you know, it's still showing that he can still be a threat to Markion, but that his strength has already waned a lot from this prison and the wound. So we see that that Loden is weaker, but he's still a force to be reckoned with. The chapter ends with a chilling note, where Markion pulls an object from his coat. It's, it's a rod made of stone and metal. It's a few feet long. It's carved and incised with screaming faces, fire, and chains. It's so metal. <laughs> this whole book is so metal. Essentially, these chapters, the blood. Wreck the punk just playing in the back. Like, it's got drugs, blood, metal, magic staffs. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> it's absolutely wild. It's just so vivid, but also... So wreck punk, so metal. Uh, I can just hear the music kind of just like slowly, just like in the background. But as he touches it, it grows this sickly purple. And we've already heard kind of like a sickly red, you know, when the hyperspace lane at the beginning of the book where the legacy run became like a sickly red. And here we see the sickly purple. And he's thinking that this rod, this object, was almost as much to blame about what happened to his ancestors as the Jedi. So really intriguing, uh, intriguing us to think like, you know, what is this? Who is he? You know, what is, you know, what is this thing? Who are his family? What is the gaze electric really? But, you know, as the purple light casts over Loden's face, quote, the Jedi's face looked strange, dead, which reminds me of the green light of the Kerr Nebula casting over Kasav's crew, making them all look like corpses earlier on, which really is just the imagery is not, it's not leaving me with a good feeling there because I've seen this kind of foreshadowing before where really now I'm starting to fear for Loden's life, which I think is very beautifully done by Charles because we've kind of seen that same kind of picture before. But what an intriguing and mysterious and horrifying way for this chapter to end with this object with the kind of the screaming faces on it, you know, the sickly purple light that might be the cause to, of the downfall of his ancestors as much as the Jedi. He's thinking, what did you make of this? It was huge. It, it like just it was unsettling. It was huge. And I think it's the perfect way that Markion could have been rounded out in this book, just with that intrigue, but also that and that menace, but also this mystery, mm-hmm. and also metal. <laughs> yeah, it's it's mystery. It's it's pure mystery. It's pure metal, um, but it's also pure pulp. Like it's so weird, and so it raises all these questions. And it's like, oh, it's a it's an artifact, and artifacts in Star Wars are always like they're not. It's not a very present factor. You know, it's not like Indiana Jones or tomb raider and that that very serialized adventure stuff 
until it is. And whenever it is, whenever there is a big artifact in Star Wars, it's always very key. If there's a holocron in a story, it's probably very key. If, you know, there's the dagger of Mortis, there's Ochi's dagger, there's a handful of other examples. This is one of them. And it just, it makes you feel like, oh, wow, we're already in the next phase of his plan. Like, it, it has a forward momentum of like, oh, what the hell's this? Like, you had the, the, the speech, the blood, the new helmet, the cape, the now the torture. Now you got something else, like a, a card that is yet to be played. It's just such a great hook for, I mean, this is like, I, I really think this book is a perfect first book. Like, it's the it's the perfect, like, yes, it's the higher public is, is different levels and age groups and there's comics involved too. But like, in terms of the Del Rey trilogy... This book is just like, it's a perfect hook. It just, it's perfectly done. And this is part of that for me. Yeah, it really introducing this all fantastically, but also leaving so many questions, so many tidbits that just leaves us wanting more as we're moving through the High Republic. Uh, speaking of moving through the High Republic, I, you know, we have the last official chapter of the book next, chapter 44. I can give my summary for that one. It is pretty straightforward, as well as the epilogue, but... I'll give my summary for chapter 44, and we can keep rolling into the final chapter of Light of the Jedi. At last, the Starlight Beacon is complete in all of its grandeur. People from all over the Republic arrive at the station for its opening ceremony, including the largest Jedi contingent outside of Coruscant. Bell, Indira, Porter, and Ember are there, each struggling with the aftermath of their mission on Elfrona. Avar and Elzar are led by a different tour group, and Elzar had finally been granted the rank of Master. Nib and Burry, Skier and Mikkel, Joss and Pika, and so many others gather into a huge assembly room awaiting Chancellor Soa's speech. At the dais, So speaks to the unity of the Republic as they take this new step in her plans for great works. She remembers all those who lost their lives to bring safety to the Outer Rim and to the Beacon. Finally, she spoke to the symbol of hope that the beacon would be. This uh, chapter really felt pretty cinematic uh, in the way that it's written, kind of like panning to all of the characters that we've met along the way. This chapter was really about the friends we made along the way. Uh, you know, kind of, I thought of the end of Inception where kind of like pa- the camera just pans Through to the each airport, of the characters. Like, <laughs> yeah, as he's, exactly. as he's going out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing everyone just like kind of walking their different ways. Um, and that, that's kind of how this chapter felt. Not a really, not a lot happens. You know, we do have this this speech at the end, this vision at the end, but kind of just panning from the different characters that we've seen and kind of where they are now. Uh, did you have any thoughts, just initial thoughts on chapter 44 before we move into this one? What's interesting about this note with the speech and everything is that it's intentionally, you're intentionally unnerved already by what you've just read and so you come into this situation that feels like a hopeful moment that feels like somewhat of a victory for most of the people there but it emphasizes the theme of fragile peace like this is all very fragile this is not not all is what it seems it's just it's very uh there's an air of melancholy over it where it feels like everything sort of has not double meaning but there's there's a layer of tension underneath what's happening. With the good in this chapter, you know, we like Elzar got his promotion. Like we still are reminded of, oh yeah, there's Skier, 
who's really struggling with the loss of you know both his arm, but also the loss of Jorah Mali, you know, that really weighing on, on uh, Skier there with the Elfrona crew, really maybe some survivor's guilt from Indira there, thinking of what might have what could have happened differently in order for Loden to not have been captured. So we, you know, we have some triumph here with the beacon being kind of unveiled, this speech at the end from So, but we're also reminded that there have been significant losses along the way and very personal losses, even to these Jedi who are really feeling it uh, as, as we see. I forgot so, that Elzar yeah. wasn't a master until the end. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. He, because too unorthodox to have been promoted around the same time as Avar and Stellan. Yeah. Yeah. So you get those moments where it's like, we're moving on up, but at what cost? It just, it's sort of, and, and again, Star Wars is good at that too, particularly with the Jedi. I recently watched, uh, I was tweeting about this. I recently rewatched Lair of Grievous. So that's been in the back of my mind. And Nadar, the Mon Calamari Jedi, who was Kit Fisto's Padawan, and how Kit Fisto says, like, I'm sorry that I wasn't there for the end of your training um, and to see you ascend to knighthood. And that apologetic sort of tone of something good that has also been sullied. It could have been something great, but this is the consolation version of what we're getting. This is the, the sad version of what could have been. This should have been pure, but everybody is bringing baggage into it now. And it's, it's interesting to see sort of how far they are able to come in just one book with everything that Skier is going through with what Elzar has gone through. And of course we'll, we'll touch on the epilogue um, when we get to it, but it's, there's a little bit of that there too of change is coming and we don't know how to feel about it. it we, we had, this book started with such a forward momentum, like great disaster. We did it. Yeah. We stopped the great disaster. We, we had losses, but we won, right? We won. Did we win? Um, right. Guys. And, that, <laughs> and you don't, you never find sure footing again. That sums it up pretty perfectly. Like, we have never really found sure footing in this book. You know, even the victories feel like defeats uh, often, which uh, is really expertly and painfully written by Charles. And we really feel it here, too, uh, in this last chapter. But, you know, we have made it. We're aboard the Starlight Beacon. We're reminded of its facilities, you know, military base with defense coalition troops it's a neutral kind of negotiation ground a transmission relay a hospital an observatory a research station a trader's market a cultural center with ever-changing and updating exhibits i've got you know some some problems with kind of the uh, kind of like the colonization ideas happening with the republic uh but really i mean you can't read this and not admit how impressive this symbol is and also just like what it is offering to the outer rim it's a really fantastical image here that we're given of the starlight beacon it really lives up to the hype that it has uh been given throughout this book and here we get to uh to really bask in its impressiveness and it has all these features and it was really cool to be reminded of what it is in all of its different capacities uh you know as as people are from all over the galaxy are boarding it and you know tour groups are going and all that so it's really a a, a fantastic image that we're given of this uh space station this great work of lena so yeah i mean you said it so well there i mean like what what it represents on top of everything we just discussed about the tension i mean this is this is what we were talking about of walking the walk right like everything 
everything comes to a head here in terms of what this could be. And, and it feels grand. Uh, it feels appropriate. Everything about this ending feels really appropriate. You know, revisiting these chapters, like it just feels like we've come such a long way just to get the pieces on the board. And now the pieces are on that board, you know. And we have a long way yet to go. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we do uh, see the Elfrona crew there. Porter is there as well. And Bell is feeling lost. You know, understandably, now that Loden is gone, we find out that uh, Indira has kind of taken him as her apprentice temporarily, you know, kind of in the interim. But Indira is convinced that Loden is dead and is currently, you know, questioning the decisions that she made. Bell is feeling lost, you know. There's really a, a really sullen tone around the Elfrona crew because they have witnessed some horrible things, you know, from children being thrown out of airlocks to, you know, staring down a, a ship that's trying to strafe run, a, a, you know, the innocent family. You know, it's really they've been through a lot there. And, you know, we kind of, uh, like I had mentioned earlier, the camera pans to all these different characters that we've seen along the way, ultimately gathering for Chancellor So and her speech. And she's speaking of a republic where every voice matters, you know, whether in the core or further out. But uh, I'll kind of uh, read a, a little bit of her, of her speech here uh, from the text. The station will be a symbol of the Republic and the Outer Rim, a place where we will celebrate our union and help each other to make it grow. It will send out a signal for anyone in the sector to hear at any time. The beacon, the beacon of the Republic, the sound, and, you know, she pauses for a second, of hope. In this pause, we read of her not being a politician, but, quote, this was a woman who believed every word of what she was saying. Which, it's it's really powerful, you know. Uh, part of me questions, you know, she's talking about a union, you know, is this a union decided by one party, being the Republic, you know, moving out here, saying that they have a union, mm -hmm. in, in a way, maybe. Yeah. But really, I, I like that that bit there where she's not speaking as a politician, but someone who has a vision that she truly believes in, which in the wrong hands can be very dangerous. But it's the power of I, ideas. I mean, that's what we're, the, that's what we're saying yeah. in this book. <laughs> ideas yeah. are as powerful as weapons, as powerful as the force in this case. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, really the, the walk that she is walking with these ideas. It can be galaxy changing. And as we, See, when we get to the prequels, like, they're, yeah, man, there's a lot that I'm yet to learn about what happens further in the higher public, but the galaxy has changed so much from this point in time and the relationship of the Outer Rim to the core and all that uh, by the time we get to the prequels. So there is a lot that does happen, and I'm just very interested to see, you know, where her vision takes her, but uh, I, I did like kind of that, I don't know if humanization of so there, but kind of removing her from the politician who she is kind of maybe 99% of the time and just as a person who believes in what they're saying it really does leave us with this hope and you know uh, Charles he does uh, he does kind of drop the name of the book here you know where after she she leaves us with the Star Wars word hope uh, the Jedi there I'll ignite their sabers and hold them up in a salute the light of the Jedi I was like oh he said the thing you know there we go but it's a really it's a powerful image to to end the book you know I guess before we get to the, the epilogue which also has a powerful image but what did you make uh, of this 
of this speech of kind of this symbol at the end where, you know, the Jedi are, you know, behind her in this, you know, we see the light of the Jedi, we get this all is well. I think earlier in the book, there was Charles did the same thing where it's like, all is well, all was not well, or like everything was okay, but actually everything was not okay. Uh, but what did you make of kind of this, this grand speech at the end, her really pushing this forward and the Jedi kind of raising that salute there in a really very cinematic, you know, we've said that a few times in this episode alone, a very cinematic end to Light of the Jedi. Yeah, this is the promise of the era, right? It's not just a glorious image that we've seen depicted in, in a couple of the comics uh, in, in some of the promo art of sabers in the air and all the all the colors and the gold of the beacon and of that room and we've been able to see that a couple times Uh, you get to see your best look at it is probably in the marvel run by kevin scott you get to see from keeve trennis's point of view this moment and it's just wow um and it's incredible and it's sort of like this is a gift to you the reader enjoy this moment if you went through a lot to get here enjoy it because it's very fleeting this is as good as it gets for a while, you know, like this is, this is act oh, one. No. Um, and it, and I, of course I have knowledge of what happens in the later books and it's not that there's never hopeful moments again, but in terms of things going according to plan, it was, it was unsure in the book if we would ever even get to this point, will the opening go as planned? Will everyone make it to the opening? What's going to happen at the opening? This, this grand launch, the ceremonial moment of symbolism and of the great works actually succeeding. This is proof positive that the great works can succeed. It's proof positive that the Jedi will overcome. But again, what we saw of everybody getting to the point where they're able to raise their sabers, not everyone is there. Not everyone is the same. Will the light be enough? And I think that this moment is both hopeful, cautionary, and raises all those questions. Yeah. Earlier we had mentioned, you know, kind of, uh, the victory at, at what cost? You know, you, that's a really great point that, you know, the people there, you know, they've lost a lot. They're changed. Not everyone's there, like you said. So it, it really, uh, we get to savor the moment because it is still a very fantastic moment, but it, it there's a lot of baggage. Like you'd mentioned uh, at the at the top of this chapter, there's a lot of baggage that people are bringing there and will continue to bring into, you know, th- throughout the, the High Republic, I can only imagine. But you're right you know, that this moment does not last very long because, uh, you know, when we flip the page with the last words there being, you know, always well, we flip the page to the epilogue where the subtitle of the epilogue is The Enemy, which, uh, uh, not good, <laughs> right? I mean, and, and I think you'd actually, you'd made a really great point earlier, uh, which we'll touch on at the end of the epilogue where kind of the idea of fear uh, and I think uh, pain we had mentioned earlier being kind of the true enemies of the Jedi, the true weapons to be used against them. But the epilogue itself doesn't begin, you know, badly. Like you know, we get this very serene image of Avar and Elzar. They're walking in one of the garden modules of the Starlight Beacon, kind of as the the parties are getting underway, uh, kind of in the distance behind them. And there are these, you know, tall, elegant trees. There's vines of red and orange, you know, stretching around this room. There's kind of gentle air currents going through the leaves and all that. 
We've mentioned a few times of how vivid the writing from Charles can be, and I could really feel this. You know, I think like nature is one of the places where I feel most at peace, and I really like related to this here, where I could just picture that and feel it. And just the two of them, we know that they've got some some history and maybe a future. We'll see, or I'll see, I guess. Uh, but it was really, I, I loved it. It was very beautiful, very simple, but it was it was just nice to read. I thought. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely hooks you. Uh, before you know, it's it's hard to you don't remember this epilogue for anything else uh, other than what happens. But revisiting it, like yeah, I mean, it is sort of um, it helps flesh out the Starlight Beacon as sort of being this place of everything they've said it is, but it's also everything that our characters need. It is that place of sanctuary, and so to be able to live in that and breathe in that for a minute here in this book because it's freshly open you know it's brand new other books you do get to explore more and stuff later on um, but this is sort of your first taste of that and so for this these two characters that have this history to come to this moment it emphasizes what we'd said before about change but not being able to really revel in that change because of circumstances so being in this serene environment is a nice sort of contrast with the turmoil that's happening between these two. Like they're not having like they're having a quiet moment that is like incredibly loud at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> um emotionally loud. And what Avar has here, you know, what what Avar unveils, you know, that she's been tasked with being the marshal uh, of Starlight Beacon because it was supposed to be Jorah supposed to be Jorah Mali and Rip and yeah rest in peace but the situation is it's melancholy you know it's that I'm gonna be out here we're gonna be separate and you get this air that Avar is maybe what's in the past is in the past for her and Elzar sort of living in the past and it's definitely two very well drawn and flushed out well-rounded characters sort of coming to the peak of their emotional arcs for this moment yeah I I, I like you're mentioning that you know maybe they both have different perceptions of where they want to be as far as the past and the present you know this is an elzar's pov so we get a lot of his thoughts and kind of uh, the the waves that he's drowning in you know every time avar looks at him he feels like he just you know he could drown in her gaze but it was still very nice for them to have this time together even though they might they might view it differently. You know, it, it, it seems like, at least from Elzar's POV, that they're both kind of thinking about these, quote, shared moments as Padawans that were tolerated and understood and even common that they had left behind when they became adults. So it really, uh, you know, I think at that moment, uh, Avar stops and kind of holds out her hand and he takes it. And it had the image that it was going to become romantic, but then Elzar, I think is the one who says we're Jedi to which she agrees. And then she looks away and she lets go and all that. There was that brief moment where he took her hand and looked into her eyes. But I thought it was interesting that he was the one who said we're Jedi. What did you make of that? Cause she looks away. She ends up looking away and letting go kind of, you know, walking on to the bigger news of, you know, Hey, I've been given command of the Jedi contingent here. But I thought it was curious that I don't, I don't think that Elzar was saying that in a way like, hey, we're Jedi, so we shouldn't be doing this because it very much feels like he you know, wants to be with her. What did you, what did you make of that little, that, that statement? I agree with you. I think that he does. And I think that it's a prompt, like he's putting the ball in her court. Like he's, I think he's saying we're Jedi because that's what he should be saying. Like I think that it's, 
I think he's hoping that she breaks the rules like he wants to, but he's also doesn't want to be the one that does it, especially coming off of his ascension to the rank of master finally and to his reputation. I think that he's saying we're Jedi like he's trying to convince himself out loud. It was sort of like my read of it because he's absolutely all in. Like what I've said about these two and I've, I've talked about it other places and some of it, I, you know, is later stuff. But overall, like they are two people that were together in like high school or college and now they're grown and it's been a long time but he never got over it and she did is what it feels like and she wants to she wants to be back in that place but she knows she can't and he wants to have it all yeah he wants to he's okay like so we're grown now we can still we still we don't have to get old we can just still act young uh and i that's the vibe that i get from him for sure yeah i mean it, it was interesting because earlier in the book in Avar's POV, she is kind of dreaming of this kind of retirement, peaceful retirement into the Naboo Lake country with Elzar. So, you know, maybe there's some vision of the future that she has where she could be with him. But I wonder if she is going to be kind of more like a maybe like a Satine character where she might have feelings, but she knows that her duty lay, lies elsewhere, not with Elzar. But uh, it, it, it with you saying that, it does kind of feel that Elzar was hoping that she would say kind of a yes, but, but she went with a yes and, and that's not what... Uh, not what she... Not what he wanted to hear. And, you know, she does give him the news, you know, that, that she has taken... Uh, that she's been given command of the beacon... She ends up leaving him, you know, asking of, hey, you know, want to grab a drink and go dance, you know, Jedi Master Elzarmon, which it was just very cute to read that, you know, just I could, I, I just want them to have that dance before maybe shit ends up hitting the fan, uh, but he does decline. He says he's just going to, he'll catch up with her. And then, oh boy, because <laughs> we can't have nice things, this right? This was it. This, was it. <laughs> this is it here, where... He's suddenly grabbed by these visions through the Force, and he's seeing these awful images, quote, cast in a sickly purple light, which is the exact same light that the object that Markion wrote, that object had given off. He saw Jedi, quote, horribly mutilated, fighting battles they could not win against awful things that lived in the dark, things that lived in the deep, and that many Jedi fled before them. I know that this might be, you know, and we've seen kind of even, you know, Master and Apprentice, like the kind of the visions that Qui-Gon had there and all that. Like there's a lot of maybe metaphor and symbolism going on there. But the quote, things that lived in the dark and in the deep, really, like that's just creepy. Like, I don't know if that's literal. I hope it's not. I don't. But then again, I don't know what this object is. If there's, you know, monsters out there, it was a very disturbing, unsettling image here that we're just thrown right into that Elzar is kind of hit with these visions of just death and pain and fear as we'll read. But yeah, what what did you make of this? It, it was very unsettling, especially with what these Jedi are up against. I don't, yeah, I'm thinking maybe that's symbolic for, for something and kind of fear and, and, and pain and anger and all that of what that can look like if they manifested, you know, corporally. But yeah, what did you think about this of this slap in the face from Charles? It's it's honestly, I love it so much, and I am so overjoyed that you got to experience it. That the people, uh, the listeners of your show, got to experience it because it's this and and the ending of the Rising Storm, which will be one of your next ones, are, are both such powerful like 
they feel so grim uh and it's such i mean on the whiplash sort of contrast level going from the christening of starlight and the unveiling to this moment right. this is, it's like the super grand and galactic scale stuff to this personal horror for elzar it plays into the theme not the theme the motif of, of visions and star wars and how it, they've plagued our heroes before the ambiguity in them what is actually happening is this to be trusted the future is always in motion we know this but at the same time clearly based on what we the reader know something is coming you know the use of purple the flashes and everything and it's just it's perfect act one sort of ending and it leans very much into that weird fantasy territory that i love in star wars yeah i know uh, i mean you talked about this earlier with you know you love when star wars gets weird uh same you know <laughs> like some of those moments are are my favorite here and this it, just so much of this book especially concerning Markion and kind of just the his character and, and what he's doing and kind of these moments here with you know the artifact and kind of connecting here and these creatures of the deep and all that it's uh very uh <laughs> kind of like you know fan a little bit of fantasy in there and it's just uh magic and different ele- you know i guess they are space wizards right but it's just these different elements to star wars that i really love here and it's it's off-putting it's unsettling but it also leaves me wanting to continue on and read more yeah that too i mean it's 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 freaking good for book sales i'll tell you that yeah it, yes <laughs> it, it'll get them off the shelves and it seems like it did that pretty effectively i i do have to wonder how because elzar is thinking that this you know as he kind of falls to his knees you know he's bleeding from his nose a little bit and he's feeling that what he saw felt certain and not unknowable which is it leaves me feeling kind of like this could become a dangerous situation if he kind of has the same path as not the same path but like the same interpretations as anakin here where it's like it feels real so it has to be and i have to do something about it and i wonder if he's going to show restraint here after he thinks about it and mulls it over hopefully talks it over with avar lets her into this but i do have to wonder how he's going to go about reacting to it especially feeling that this is certain and not unknowable. And I'll just read the end of the epilogue here because it's really very chilling and ties back into what you've been talking about um, with kind of the tools that Markion is implementing against the Jedi here as, uh, as this book culminates. I'll read the end here. Quote, What had he seen? The worst was not the chaos, the battles, the pain, the unknown, monstrous horrors surging out of the dark. It was what he had seen on the face of every single Jedi the Force had shown him. The greatest enemy of all. Fear. Mm. I mean, what an ending. What an ending. It just focuses in on the ideas. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Ideas hold the real power. You know, like you you had said, this is a full circle. Uh, you know, and and fear being the 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 greatest enemy of them all to defeat. You know, I think even that was something that Bell Zedifar had come up against. You know, in mastering the Force fall earlier in the book, or trying to, where the real obstacle was the fear of, you know, failure or fear of not being able to, and kind of getting over his fear of what was going on and letting the Force in. And here, Elzar seeing the you know the the big bad you know seeing the fear on the jedi's faces 
as they fled these monsters mm. surging out of the darkness and the deep. Just what an ending yeah. to Light of the Jedi. <laughs> such a, just a triumphant book. It's just a, such an achievement. The, this had to sell the entire era. You know, th- this book was the most high pressure publishing release that they've had of new canon. And it definitely, I think, delivered in spades. It's so powerful. Yeah, really. I, I feel like 95% of just everyone I've heard talk about this book and, and share about it have loved it. And I think really, I mean, I have to wonder, like, what if it flopped? You know, like, what if it wasn't received well? But really, I think it, the credit to Charles Soule and what he was able to do with this book, you know, it, you know, kind of it's culminating a journey for me across the, the past eight months talking about it. Um, but it, it really is a, is a fantastic book to kick off this High Republic era of Star Wars and uh, Alden. I mean, it, it, these have been fantastic chapters to, to talk about you with. You know, this does bring us to the end of this episode, to the end of the season. But thank you for being here to talk about some Land of the Jedi. If the listeners wanted to hear more of your voice, more of your takes, more of your work. Can you talk about what you do and tell them where they could find your works on the internet? And again, thank you so much for being on to talk about these chapters and to close out this book. It's been really oh, great. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much. Gracious host guided us through so well, um, did the homework of the summaries and everything. And uh, didn't ask me to type a single thing. This was all him, my friends. No, but <laughs> it, it really was just um, a great journey. Great to revisit this one. We don't get to do a lot of revisiting, I feel, as Star Wars fans, right? Because there's always the next thing, and you don't want to be spoiled. You have to be current. You have to be. Uh, you get a book in the mail, or you buy a book at the store. It's like I got to read this now because you know it's the next thing is going to come. The next thing. But to go back with a greater sort of understanding and with the advent of time, it's always a, a great time. So. Uh, as for me and my shows, so Octo Radio, Star Wars podcast, started off as that show, and now there's a few shows on that. Uh, that podcast feed, Octo Radio, the main show, is hosted by me, created by me, and that's where I interview people from the Star Wars space, people from Lucasfilm, people involved with Star Wars in various capacities. I just had AJ Locasio on, who's the voice of Han in uh, Forces of Destiny and in all the Lego stuff. Uh, wonderful guy. I've had uh, Kelly Knox on from StarWars.com. She's coming up again. Christina Ariel from The Higher Public Show. Daniel Jose Older. Justina Ireland from The Higher Public. So you'll find all kinds of Star Wars people one-on-one long-form interviews there. We also do a show there called A Rewatch Between Worlds. That's uh, Rebels Rewatch, an analysis show going all the way back to the beginning of Rebels, going through the entire thing and all the behind the scenes Rebels recon material and talking about that, breaking down all the themes. And you could probably expect some actor interviews there as well, some crew interviews. And then there's also the Mandatory and Creed, which is hosted by Tori Fox, produced by me. Uh, and Tori does multi-part breakdowns of different Star Wars topics. Uh, her last series, hers is sort of like seasonal series based. So her last season was The Book of Boba Fett because that's her thing. Um, and that I'm sure she'll be back down the road um, for another season. One and Done Film Club is my other podcast that I do with Nikki Kumar and Reed Devaney. That one's more laid back, more fun. The episodes are long. They're like three hour long episodes because we take a movie franchise and we have a debate. The first segment is a debate, a discussion, a fight about what franchise, what installment of that franchise should stand for the entire thing. Not what's your favorite, 
necessarily, not what's the best necessarily, although sometimes that comes in, but which of those should be the one that is like, that is sort of all of it. That is the, the ultimate taste of it. Uh, and then once that's decided, we do a commentary on the movie right there, right at that moment, right after deciding we kick back and we watch the movie. So those are long, um, but one and done film club will be back soon. It's in, it's in a break right now, but uh, you can find all of that either uh, at uh, Octo radio. It's a H C H T O radio, wherever you get your podcasts across social media. One and done film club is on Twitter at one and done show. It's the word one, the letter N show done show. Uh, and then uh, me personally, uh, Instagram and Twitter at that Alden Diaz, T H A T A L D E N D I A Z. Boom. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> uh, listeners, I will post the links to Alden's social media, his work in the episode description. Go check his work out. If, uh, if you liked what you heard today, which <laughs> if you're here, if you're still here, you definitely have so. <laughs> but Alden, again, thank you for joining for this episode to wrap up this season, to wrap up Land of the Jedi. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I've enjoyed our conversation, our discussion so much. Thank you so much, man. It's been great, man. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully, we'll do it again for another excellent book down the road. Before we close out today, our last Searcher Readings Live of the season will be next Thursday, May the 5th at 6 p.m. Eastern. I can't interfere with our Star Wars holiday on May the 4th. I'll give my thoughts on the season as a whole, looking back at Light of the Jedi, so send me any questions or comments on the book and the High Republic, or just about Star Wars in general. You can send them to me on social media or by email at outerrimreadspod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay connected to the show, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show for as little as $3 a month, you can do so at patreon.com slash Outer Rim Reads. Outer Rim Reads is created, hosted, and produced by Andrew Geha, and this episode was also edited by Andrew Geha. We'll be back in a few months. I have got some catching up to do with the High Republic, so stay up to date with our social media for more updates on next season. But until then, sit back, enjoy. We've got a wild ride ahead yet. I'll see you all in Season 4.